0: Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
1: It's Tuesday, April 5th. I'm Maggie Lake and we are once again coming to you from live from the Real Vision macro experience at the Fairmont Grand Delmar. And it's been terrific. And our guest today here with me is someone really special that we're excited to introduce you to, Mish Schneider, Director of Trading Education at MarketGage.com. And Mish is someone who's a frequent contributor for Real Vision and guest on the platform. This is the first time she's doing the daily briefing. So welcome, Mish.
2: Thank you, Maggie. And I just want to start out by saying how wonderful Real Vision is, not just as a company, everybody in the staff, but then to be able to put on a presentation like this and make everybody feel so special
1: is really appreciated. Oh, that's great. And it's so good to be here live in person and get to sort of mingle with the people that we see on the platform. We don't all get to spend time in person. You guys don't get to spend time in person. And we're really getting, I I think, a good um, taste of the environment we're in right now because we have a lot of divergent opinions like you were listening to sessions we were just talking about it and you're like that made sense to me that was interesting not sure about that so it's it's sort of great to kind of air it all out and and try to hear what people are thinking and see if we can all use that so before we dive in and it's it's a good day to talk right because we had equities selling into the close never a good sign uh us markets down nasdaq really taking a hit a lot of it Seems like it's coming from uh, Fed Governor Brainard saying, listen, we're going to rapidly reduce the size of the balance sheet. We're going to start to do it soon. So, again, getting a little more aggressive than maybe people had anticipated, even as we talk about 50 basis point rate hike at the next meeting um, and just trying to figure out what it all means, especially for risk assets. So there's a lot to unpack. But um, first, like, give us a little give everyone a little background. You and I have done shows together, so I know some of it. But for those who are new to you, just tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Well, I grew up in New York and I grew up with parents that were very middle class. And so we were not the kind of family that sat around, talked about our stock portfolios at dinner. And so I became a teacher, which is what they thought I should do. And I became a special ed teacher because I was particularly fascinated by the different brain. Mm. And then years later, after doing that for a while, I met this girl in a building that I lived in in Manhattan. At that point, I had moved on from being near my parents and she worked for Merrill Lynch down on the floor, commodities exchange floor. And so she said, Hey, you want to come down and have a look? And I did. And it was one of those light bulbs. I was just like, Oh my God, because I had been so sheltered. And now here I could see that these people running around had their fingers on the pulse. And I loved all the flashing of the numbers. And I didn't understand what commodities were at the point, but I just felt like this was where I needed to be. Mm -hmm. And so I wound up, Not so easily, but I did get down there. (laughs) That's an understatement. (laughs) (laughs) And and I got down there at a time that was probably, uh, till now, the most interesting and exciting time for commodities, which was the hyperinflation of the late 70s, early 80s. So I was a young girl who was hired as a coffee, sugar, cocoa expert, where I was getting on the squawk box telling brokers around the world what was going on which, of course, was a real fast track to having to learn. (laughs) And then Conti Commodities put me in the pit. So And then they went under because, again, this is so interesting how history comes full circle with LME and the nickel explosion of the LME. Silver blew up because of the Hunt brothers and Conti Commodities was clearing those trades. So they blew up and I found myself now on the floor without a job. So i became a local and then i started trading all the different pits most of my time in the oil pit and i spent 13 14 years there so it was great the best education not just in markets but
1: really life it's so true and and um, and a, a quick teaser i'm going to give you more information later but uh, mish is you you can hear a lot more about that background she is one of the guests on a new podcast that we're doing my life in four trades which gives uh, the two best, two worst trades and what it means, not just about trading, though, it's really about decision-making, trade-offs in life, um, and how people got to where they are, and the kind of strategies and thinking that helped them uh, stay successful. So super excited about it. We had a great conversation. That's a little thats a little sneak peek to it. But, but that background is one of the reasons we love having you on, because it, w- there's so much happening and commodities are at the center of it. Of course, you look at everything. You, you look across all asset classes um, and sort of bring that that um, experience, trading experience, with your education experience, I think, and really sort of help us understand it, um, which is why I love having Nishan. So let's let's dive into today. Um, you know, what what's top of mind for you as you look at the action? I mean, we, you know, a lot of we've been talking about, um, you know, leading up to this, a lot of questions about is the bear, It was this a bear market rally, meaning stocks going up and only temporary, um, and gonna have another leg down? What would be the catalyst? And then sure enough today, it looks like things are deteriorating. So, you know, What do you think about as you look across the screen today?
2: Well, I've watched certainly a lot of people get really bullish at the top. And just like we're probably gonna watch a lot of people get bearish at the bottom because ultimately I think where we're at right now is an established trading range. Now that doesn't mean that we can't break under the trading range or break out from the trading range. And right now obviously we'd be looking more at the breakdown. But it does tell me that if we are looking at somewhat of a mimicry of where we were at the last time we had these levels of inflations, the market traded within a 40% range for 15 years. And so it's- Stocks you mean? Yes, yeah. the Dow. Yeah. And so the Dow went from 1,000 to 600 and traded within that range until 1984 when it finally broke out of 1,000 and never looked back. So now we have sort of the reverse situation because we had commodities at historical lows with equities at historical highs, and it would seem pretty obvious to people who really studied this that that was not sustainable. So now, of course, which enters- we, were,
1: we were talking about—gosh, I don't know—oh, sort of late summer. You, yeah. were, you were flagging that.
2: Yeah. So you know, I, this whole idea of stagflation is really, I think, the narrative here. So. Yes, there's a lot of conversation about recession coming with the inverted yield curve and leads to recession, but nothing about today is typical. And even though we see parallels to the 70s, there certainly are, we still have a very unique situation because of the accommodative Fed policy we've had, and also because of COVID. And I think people are sort of forgetting about the impact yeah. of a pandemic that really changed everything, labor, yeah. Yeah. Bank policy, uh, the, way, you know, the way goods move, supply chain, all of that. And we're still just coming out of it. And some countries aren't even coming out of it. China. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so here we are now. Everybody's trying to decipher what's going on. And I say, really what's going on is that we're seeing a super cycle of commodities, equities, even though the Fed was hawkish today. It seems like Powell sends out his minions and yet when a push comes to shove, they're doing things very slowly, probably too slowly. And as a result, you have a lot of retail investors, huge amount of options buying, volatility still at relative lows. And that's really why I think the recession thing, maybe at some point, but now I'm more, like I say, sticking to the trading range theory. And if we just look at small caps, if they hold at 202, which they basically tested today, and they went to 212, which was the resistance, then this chop could be going on. And that's why I'm trying to tell most people who invest, get creative and look at other things outside of the typical index funds or regular growth assets.
1: And that, that's where people sort of got in that lane, right? You, you didn't have to be very discriminating. You just sort of stuck your money in an equity fund and it went up and it went up substantially. So you didn't have to think about cross assets that much.
2: Right, and so that's also part of the problem. Is that for the last thirteen years, the market was very forgiving. Yeah. Even if it went against you, even if it went against you ten, twenty percent, or forty percent, like it did in COVID, it came roaring back. And that is now, I think, a completely different mindset that people have to embrace.
1: And what what I what I like about what you're saying is so so as you know, we have we have uh, traders and active traders. As part of our viewership, we have longer term, we have investors, everyone's got to grow their money, right? So the problem with range trade is you're not going to be able to grow your savings, especially if you're on the retail side. Um, you, You need to do something to be able to get yield and to get income.
2: Absolutely. And so what I've told a lot of the boomers, especially those who are getting ready to retire, is that they really need to call their financial planners, look at their portfolios, and get out of their growth stocks, Mm. especially if they're really counting on that money for their retirement. And if they want to continue to invest, to look across other assets, and of course we've been talking about commodities for quite some time, and even today with the market down so much, wheat, coffee, sugar, DBA, which represents a lot of the other grains and the softs, were all up, Mm. so that's a whole other thing we can talk about. But yeah, in terms of where is your money going to grow right now, that's going to be a really interesting question, and that could ultimately lead to a lot more of what we're already seeing, which is just general malaise and unrest because the status quo has been completely changed.
1: Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S Y N ads dot com
1: and I think you say interesting an interesting thing about COVID because you're right, we've kind of pivoted because of now we have war, right? So we're all focused on that. But we don't re- I don't know that we know the changes that have happened yet. We know things were accelerated, massively disrupted, things may not go back to the way they were before, but I'm not sure we really know what that looks like yet. So that makes it hard to figure out what's happening, whether you look at the labor market or supply chains.
2: Exactly, I mean, let's take last month, in Feb—well, two months ago now, in February, 4.4 million people quit their jobs. And this is in a situation where clearly people are paying more for the goods, and yet, even though you hear a lot of media about people really filling the pension, of course they are, there's still a general sentiment out there of, I think a little bit of disbelief that this will last. Mm. I think people still think this is all transitory. And and they blame COVID for part, obviously the war in Ukraine is the other part, but this kind of was mulling about even before because suppliers just stopped producing yeah. raw materials. I mean, you take somebody like Kathy Wood, and I'm certainly not going to discredit her because I think her vision is interesting and probably going to be right in about 15 years. But this whole idea that technology is going to take care of us and we never have to worry about the price of raw materials or how things get moved about again Well, you can see by the ARC fund, that Mm. to me was the precursor of where things were gonna shift in terms of growth stocks, disruptive technology is not the future right now. And so again, people need to look at what's really happening and there's a real sea change going on. And all of a sudden people are looking around and saying, this is what I need, not necessarily what I want. Mm. And yet there's still the sense of, The stock market's the best place to put your money because it always yields a return if you just wait seven years. And also on top of that, we have a whole other macro thing going on, which uh, you know we can talk about at another time. But really, I think we're in a, just a state of distrust, and a lack of credibility exists everywhere, yeah. and people are waking up to that.
1: Yeah, I think that's so true, and I don't think enough, atten- enough attention is being paid on i Mitch mean, is going to do a panel um, talking about some of these macro issues, so I hope we get a chance tomorrow to, to dive into that and, and unpack that a little bit, because I think it is it is an undercurrent that's not being addressed. I want to ask you about about commodities, so. We've seen big moves already um, in some of this. Uh, you telegraphed some of them to us last year, um, and then they've even been, I think, stronger, some of the advances because of uh, this, the disruptions we've seen from Ukraine. Has that played out? Like if people were not in commodities already, can they? is there still time to get in them? How are you thinking about that? Oh, definitely.
2: I mean, if we just take something like DBA and we just look at a chart, if you put out a chart It's been consolidating now for the last several months, partly because there's been volatility even in some of the commodities. You know, wheat's gone up as high as 13 and then dropped down to the mid 9, 950 if we're looking at WEAT, not the actual crop price. And oil has been all over the map and sugar has been all over the map and coffee's been all over the map, but the resiliency continues to be there. And I think it's just another launch pad waiting to happen. I do believe that food inflation I've believed this for two years now, is really the driver of where we're going in terms of this hyperinflation, that oil can be up and down and be tossed around by the politicians and everything else, and whether or not we drill or don't drill or we look at ESG or not, and again, that's all something we can talk about another time, but people need to eat. Mm. And I think what we're seeing here is exactly that, is the realization that regardless of what's happening we have Mother Nature as another factor here, and the weather patterns in the United States have been insane in some of these weak growing regions, that this is still an opportunity, and we have not seen anywhere near the pinnacle of where this can go.
1: Wow, and they've been up a lot, so that's um, that's both interesting and really frightening from it a is. consumer point of view. John was asking that. Do you expect, John from the RV site, do you expect commodities, metals, energy, et cetera? So, so let's let's... Put food aside for just one second, and we'll take this question, because he's asking about metals and energy, too. And we need to sort of segment them, because, because, because you, can have, you can have broad commodity exposure, or you could have it more targeted. So John's asking, um, do you expect commodities, metals, energy, et cetera, to pull back after such a strong run in the past few weeks? What's the outlook for the rest of the year? But I'll tag on that, John, if you don't mind. Should we think of them separately, or should we think of them broadly? Because we just said you can't do that with stocks, right? So what about, what about commodities?
2: I think you have to look at them in both ways Mm -hmm. um, because there's a connection among all the commodities right now. And that is again, getting back to this sort of period that we have come into. And again, I don't wanna overlap too much into what I'm gonna talk about tomorrow. But really we're talking about a period of sort of a revolutionary mindset. And that revolution could look like a lot of different things.
1: Revolutionary in terms of, unru- uh, of unrest, upheaval and unrest, or just not just revolu- changing
2: the way things have always been done. Because after a long period of complacency, people have woken up to a level of distrust. Mm-hmm. Banks, medical uh, places, uh, science, government, information, information, information in general, right? False news. I mean, all that. Everything that we had counted on, especially in our complacent years. Mm-hmm is now we're saying, oh, wait a minute, we can't count on any of this right now. And so if you look at that from a commodities trading perspective, where do commodities shine in periods of these hyper unrest situations, whether that looks like a war in Ukraine, whether that looks like a political party that emerges that's different, like the Tea Party did years ago, whether that looks like cryptocurrency or decentralization. Um, However that looks, it's coming and it's been coming and it's continuing to come. So in that way, we look at it collectively. As far as the individual instruments, I think you have to look at obviously the data points in the charts and things do obviously get overbought and oversold. However, energy right now is in a situation where there's more of it, it's actually in some ways more readily available if we actually, I mean, not like tomorrow, like, but it's readily available if we go there and if we can get past all the conversations about ESG versus yeah. dinosaur fuels yeah. and blah, blah, blah. If we re- and then look at nuclear energy and all of that stuff. Clearly, what we've discovered really started, I think, in the Texas freeze a couple of years ago, um, is that we don't have enough energy to fuel the planet in a crisis mm. the way things are right now. So that can, I think, continue to be volatile, and probably I think, say more to the upside than the downside at this point. If you take a look at the grains, I'm just straight up bullish. Any dip I think should be bought. If you look at gold and silver, that's a whole other animal. Okay? Yeah, everyone's
1: joking how, how tough gold would go. And, and it
2: is tough because again, it's not acting in the classic way. But if things actually get more unruly and when people can't eat, whether, I mean, it's already started, obviously in poorer countries, and now Europe is going to have an issue. And the United States, we're still, we do have people here starving, which is amazing, but for the most part, we still have access to food. If that gets worse, this is where people turn to gold. Gold is the mechanism of geopolitical strife. And in 1979, it also can be a laggard to oil. So if you go back and look at what happened in the 70s, Oil went up first. We had the oil embargo. And then uh, after that, you had another spike when uh, OPEC sort of played around with the prices. And it wasn't until about a year to three years later that we started to see the soft commodities go and then gold and silver.
1: That's interesting because the conversation we had this morning, it was just like, I, I know it's supposed to act this way, but if you can't, get, if, if this isn't the perfect condition for gold to rally, then is it is it ever going to? And you have some people throwing in the towel, but you're suggesting maybe it's not that it won't ever, but it's just lagging more than people.
2: Well, two facts about gold from a technical perspective is, one is it was the, one of the top performing um, instruments in the first quarter, number one. And number two, with the market down in some cases, like NASDAQ, almost 3%, gold was down a half a percent.
1: So, at the very least, it's preservation. Exactly. Even if it's
2: not- I think it is preservation. I mean, obviously. And diversification. Yes. And then silver is even more interesting because silver actually has like usage. Like, for example, you can't have an electric car without some silver involved in that. And also, it's, all, it's been a classic hedge against inflation. So, it does make you scratch your head, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I would give up on it because I think it could caught, catch people uh, off guard. And I think what could happen is, like I said, is with this skepticism and lack of credibility that that banks have and governments have and corporations have and all the rest, people can say, you know what, just like countries are buying physical gold, it's Mm. time to buy some gold. So... I'm going to run out and buy like millions of contracts of gold, but I am saying keep an eye on
1: it. Yeah. Yeah. We have a question. This is a great question from Caroline from the RV site. Would you prefer DBA and futures-based ETFs to outperform agribusiness companies, for example, MOO ETF?
2: Now, the agribusiness, that's a
1: great question. Great one for Mish, too. I wouldn't wouldn't ask this to everybody, but.
2: Well, the agribusiness companies have done well with the elevated prices of commodities, just like commodity producing countries, their country ETFs, have really outperformed the rest of the market. So if you look at South Africa and Brazil and Australia, they're doing Mexico- ILF, which is Latin America. So everything involved with commodities right now is doing well. There could become a separation to that at some point Mm. because these agribusinesses still need to deliver. They need labor uh, and they will have price escalation to the point uh, where it could impact them and they would have to make cutbacks because obviously they are still gonna wanna deliver the food, Mm. but they may have to save money elsewhere. And of course, there's the expression of the the best cure for high commodity prices is high commodity right. prices. Because it kill
1: demand? Right? But
2: but but how could you kill demand in right. food?
1: You right. just can't. It dep- right. It depends. But people can trade down. Mm-hmm. You know, we're seeing that already. I mean, we've all had sticker shock, and you're like, oh, maybe I'm not going to get that steak. Like what? Well, right. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm going to maybe going to have pasta instead. I mean, exactly,
2: yeah. and and certainly if you go back to the depression days, that's yeah. what
1: people did. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Talk to talk to grandma. Right? They're still <laughs> around. I mean, they're 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 getting older and not with us as much. But you do generational conversations about that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is this is also um, an interesting question. Are you looking at high yield? This is from Tim in New York on the RV site. High yield downside potential question mark. If the markets roll over and break February lows, this is an area where you know the high yield bond market it hasn't maybe had the destruction that people for if they're if people are super negative you haven't maybe seen the fallout things have been moving but maybe not as much
2: i love this question because i hyper focus on junk bonds and high yield debt and i've been watching both jnk hyg and the ratio between junk bonds and long bonds and so the it's what's interesting is if you look at the ratio of the high yield bonds to the 20 year bonds high yield bonds are outperforming on a ratio basis, which is risk on classically. However, if you look at junk bonds in and of itself, that too, just like the market is range bound right now, which is Mm. so interesting. Because um, although it didn't have n- nearly the rally that overall equities had w- in the last, you know, the, the statistic S&P rally, you know, 10 days in a row, which yeah. usually means it's bullish. You yeah, know, blah, yeah. blah blah. Um, <laughs> you it, tell which yeah. feels about that. <laughs> well, because I was watching high yield yeah. bonds and they rallied, but not really. They rallied enough from the lows. They consolidated and, of course, today they dropped but not anywhere near the floor. Well, none of the equities were near the floor either. When I say the equities, I mean the indices were not near the floor where they break and that's it, game over. So yeah, I think you got to continue to watch those junk bonds because people come in and buy them when they feel that these junk companies can still produce high yield. And that's but one they, They're saying they're
1: not going to default. They're, exactly. get, they're chasing the yield and saying, even if things get bad, it's not going to get bad enough to cause defaults. Which, paired with the, you know, what you're seeing with the yield curve, there is this weird. We're hearing a lot of worry and concern here, but you're not seeing it everywhere in the market. You're not seeing that pricing, or you're not seeing recession pricing and high yield, but the treasury market's telling you they're concerned based a- on absolutely. inversion. So you've got mixed signals, don't you?
2: absolutely and if you think some people think the bond traders are the smartest ones because they see all of this stuff and that's why i focus on the relationships of the high yield bonds the treasury bonds the long bonds and the s p 500 and again the s p 500 is also outperforming the long bonds which is another risk on environment this is why i mean this is just another example of why i try to step back from the hysteria of we're going down another 25% and we could, but still this we're going into this long drawn out recession bear market. Until I see the data change, mm. at this point, I'm really looking at it more. So where's my opportunity when clearly you can see the selling dry up, a range bound, a level of support that makes sense. And then the buyers come pouring in because they do mm. keep pouring in. And uh, until that changes I'm not saying I'm bullish but what I'm saying is is that I have my eye on commodities and that's why I have my eye on commodities because I think there's still a disconnect and even somewhat of a disbelief in terms of where we could be going with this inflation out of control which will eventually impact equities I mean Germany is a great example Germany has the highest inflation rate they've had since 1981. Yeah. You know what their yields were in
1: 1981? What? 11.4%. You know what they are now? Zero. Yeah. They're just out of negative territory. Exactly.
2: So when people get all hysterical because Brainerd said, you know, maybe we're going to go up another half percent. And I've been around long enough to know where yields were when Volcker really decided to and the inflation at the at the risk of recession and everything else. We're in a different political point right now, too. Mm. Yeah, Powell's not going to do that, and the government probably is not going to allow him to do that. So at some point, equities will kind of figure that out, and that ratio I started out talking about between commodities and equities. Okay, so here's commodities and his equities, but they're still so
1: mm-hmm. far apart. Yeah, which is which is which is worth watching. And, that, and that, so, so that is, again, the answer to where do you think they're going to go from here? And are you too late if you haven't been in them? We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lipson Ads. Go to LipsonAds.com now. That's libsyna Um,
1: Ralph's asking about palladium. Any views on palladium?
2: Well, interesting because there's another relationship of palladium to gold that is one that we watch for inflationary indicators. And palladium, actually no i'm sorry let me take that back that's platinum to gold so platinum has been outperforming palladium has been going up with the industrial metals do i watch it as a key indicator not so much Mm -hmm. i do watch the platinum that's why i got confused on my peas there for a second but the um but the palladium market i would say would be more in line with what's happening with copper and steel and again has been extremely volatile and i'm sure went down today with the rest of the metals um so there is still somewhat of a privy to having uh exposure believe it or not to a risk on situation so they also have a liquidity issue in that people sell out mm-hmm. and again it goes back to i think the disbelief that commodities can continue to run
1: yeah um talk a little bit about one of the things we're talking I, we're going to continue to talk about psychology around inflation because i think that's interesting and it's the same with stocks and commodity. There, there's a whole thread about what you know whether people are gonna change your behavior and how much is left to how we you know or or is chalked up to how things have been and we're kind of locked into that mindset and how long it takes to change it. But we're also talking a lot about the economy. I'm sure this is gonna come up in the conversations tomorrow. You have a um, a framework that you use for figuring this out that you call the modern economic family. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Because I think it makes it really easy to understand. Well, this is where
2: I'm so thankful that I spent so many years in special education (laughs) because, hey, I was one of those special ed kids going down to a place that I had known nothing about in an environment that was extremely wild. And so as a result, when I got more involved with equities, I had to come up with a framework to be able to make sense, a story. Because ultimately, we remember stories more than we remember facts. And so I started to see a story of the relationships between these key sectors, and these were all very U.S.-centric sectors. So, for example, even though everybody's focused on the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, I noticed that it was the small caps, either their leaders, and in the last several years, really basically laggards, because that's 2,000 uh, stocks. The
0: Russell. The Russell. The Russell
2: 2000. That is 2,000 stocks that all trade within the United States, so it really represents the industrial manufacturing side of the United States. So when people talk about this great growth, they talk about a technological growth, but we haven't really had any great growth in this country from an infrastructure and a manufacturing standpoint. So I made him my granddaddy of the family because if small caps are doing well, optimistic. Not doing well, not so optimistic. Okay, Simple, but it works. And he's got a wife because what is the other major aspect of the U.S. economy is consumerism, obviously 70% of the GDP. So I use retail as granny. So it's Granny Ripoll and Grandpa Russell. And they became sort of the matriarch and patriarch of the U.S. economy and my modern family. And then I have these sectors that are very important, transportation being obviously a key because that's the demand side of the economy. And what we're seeing actually lately Is the demand side has went up? You know, when the war started, because of uh, obviously there was a disconnect there because it looked like transportation was going to go flying, and it led the way down on Friday, and now it's leading the way down this week.
1: Yeah, a lot of people have been watching that that the The, transport sector. Right, right,
2: and then I added semiconductors because obviously Silicon Valley and computer chips have been a huge aspect of the economy. Regional banks because not big banks, regional banks, because they really measure more of what the rural areas are doing in this country, the meat of this country.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And then uh, I round that off with biotechnology because biotechnology is um, really a cyclical and a non-cyclical. And again, it was a relative outperformer today because no matter what happens, people need their medical care and they need their pharmaceuticals, etc. I added a new member last two, couple of years ago, and that's cryptocurrency. But we're still discovering yeah. how crypto relates to the rest of the economy, not just in the US, but globally. That's still in point of discovery here. The, the youngster.
1: Um, the adolescent, had yes. You had an <laughs> interesting observation about crypto today. Because crypto has been trading, regardless of how people feel about it, with risk assets. But we didn't really see that so much today
2: no and so that's that's why it's in it's an adolescent that's Mm -hmm. why i keep calling it an adolescent because it doesn't really know what it wants to be yet when it grows up and and you can see when i talk about these sectors that way and i make them human Mm -hmm. it's so much easier for me and hopefully for the people who follow me to wrap their head around making sense of all of this. So you can see our 17-year-old, we look at Bitcoin as the oldest of the coins, barely budged today. And the last time the S&Ps went down a couple of weeks ago, it barely budged. It broke down to about 38, but the S&Ps went much lower. Now it it broke 46, but just marginally by the end of the day. So again, that tells me two things. One is that we still don't really know what the impact is on the US economy, number one, but number two is in terms of this sort of change the way the status quo is and look at things from a more decentralized place, DeFi, no matter how many governments try to stop it, it's taking its own life is also very, very interesting and probably a really good opportunity for investment as well.
1: That's what I was going to ask you. Let's end on that because we know you're bullish on commodities and diversification. Sounds like it's really critical right now. Would Should people be thinking about a little crypto in their portfolio with the caveat that it depends when you need the money, your age, your your risk tolerance? We have no way of knowing that. But generally, I know you're tracking it all because you want to get a handle on the price action. But are you also do you also think it has a place in portfolios?
2: I do. I think, though, because it is like a commodity, which means it's extremely volatile, and also that has the twenty-four-hour thing. You know, gold yeah. trades twenty-four hours, and, and so a lot of the grains and things. Um, obviously, currency trades twenty-four hours. I think because crypto trades twenty-four hours, there's a level of you have to really make sure when you wake up in the morning it hasn't. I get these messages from from my crypto app. Bing, and it wakes me up in the middle of the night. Bitcoin just dropped 6%. And I'm like,
1: oh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, an iron constitution is required. Well,
2: you know, the thing is, is that, again, if you can try to see if 38,000 right now is our new support level and you're going to get in at 46, you better understand that you have that much exposure. Yeah. Um, and if you're going to get in on the dip, then you can be much, you can be much more nimble. And if the momentum starts to gain to the upside, then you can look at it a momentum play. But right now, it's not a momentum play. It's more of a dip buy. It's impressively consolidating, so it may actually offer a less volatile option for investments. But it's evolving, so I would keep an eye on it, but not get too too crazy.
1: As we close out, what what's your what's your favorite? thought right now is it is it in the is it in the food space what are you kind of most bullish about what trade are you most bullish about
2: i think i'm most still most bullish in the food commodities uh again you know it's funny because we talked about this with real vision starting in 2019 Mm -hmm. because it was obvious that all of these suppliers had cut back on their production of food and all it was going to take was a geopolitical event a pandemic and now mother nature to really put that at risk. And we are far from resolving that shortage right now or the labor issues that come with it. And we have even more concerns on top of that. The Ukraine war is not over and even when it is, it's gonna take a while. And now there's a circling of China needs so much food and now there's the threat of China, Taiwan, and that would just put another big X into the whole thing. So yeah, that's really kind of where my major focus is right now.
1: Mish, it's been so much fun having you on the daily briefing. We're oh, actually you. we're actually going to dash off to do another segment. We're getting our money's worth out of Mish <laughs> while she's here, but we hope you enjoy that. And Mish is um, very easy to find on Twitter, and we'll we'll post all that on the daily briefing. Um, so, so happy you could meet her and tune in. Um, and a little bit more information about the podcast. Yay! We're super excited about um, some great conversations coming your way. Uh, if you want to find them, and I'm going to read this so I get it right, you can go to Real Vision at realvision realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades with the numeral four, not the letter four. But if you go on the site, hopefully we hyperlink it or something, or you can find it wherever you find all your podcasts. But I think you're really going to enjoy the conversations. They're really philosophical, really personal, and um, all of the people are really taking the time to share some really hard learned lessons and insights, um, which was just fantastic. So we hope you'll join us for that too. We'll be back again live from the Macro Experience tomorrow with Julian Bridgton, another person that you don't get to see very often on the Daily Briefing. He has a lot of uh, um, conversations duels you might call them with Raoul on the macro insider so he's going to be here tomorrow which would be really fun so we hope you can join us then in the meantime take care and good luck out there
2: my worst trades are not the trades i've lost on necessarily because i always do it with control the worst trades are the ones that i don't take and that's really where the nemesis of traders comes into play fear the risks i took were nuts they were nuts. It was nuts spending 10% of my account on a trade. In
0: some cases, 20% of my account on a trade. If the markets would have been different, I would have been carried out on, on a stretcher.
1: I went from being a very uh, wealthy and very hubris-ridden young man to having a negative net worth on my 29th birthday. Uh, my investment goal uh, went from surpassing the Rockefellers to just getting back to broke. The problem with Reader's Digest was that straight out of the gate,
2: it went down and when I bought more it went down and when I bought more it went down
1: and so I've always chaptered this profound and disturbing episode in my life as I've ordained it as the, the arrogance and the conceit of a well formed argument
2: that I was blinkered to the reality that the thing was going down